This is kind of a deja vu moment for me. Uh, one year ago, this month, I was preaching here as a guest speaker, and Teen Challenge was here. It is now one year later. Pastor Scott, as you know, has preached 16 weeks in a row and is taking a much-deserved vacation, and I'm back. I'm so glad to be with you. Oh, this is going to be fun. Hey, these next four weeks, uh, we're going to be studying in the book of Jonah. How many of you have heard the story of Jonah? All of us have heard the story of Jonah growing up. And, and over these next four weeks, even though it's probably one of those popular stories of the Old Testament, especially in the Minor Prophets, sometimes the familiarity of the account uh, actually keeps us from seeing the bigger idea, the point of the text. And so we're going to make a preposition this morning that I believe that Jonah is more about redemption, not revenge. It's all about second chances. And in fact, today we're going to see the Jonah in all of us. Now, one of the problems with the book of Jonah is what? Liberal critics think it's what? That's an allegory, that it's just a story, that it never happened. And yet we'll show a little later this morning that I believe this actually did happen. It's not an allegory. It, it is an historical fact in history. But it does remind me of a little girl who went to Sunday school, listened to her teachers, the story of Jonah, and she saw uh, the whole deal and what God had done. And so the next day, uh, she gets to go to school, and it's show and tell. And so she brings her picture book of Jonah uh, to school, that, and the teacher asked her, do you really believe this story was true? And the little girl said, of course I believe the story is true. It's in the Bible. Well, the teacher kind of shook her head kind of condescendingly. And you know uh, what teachers could possibly do in that situation. And you know, young lady, it's impossible for a, a large whale to swallow a human. And the thought that this could actually happen, uh, the throat is small. And she went on and on and on. And so... The teacher said, now seriously, can you prove that the story of Jonah is true? Well, the little girl thought for a moment. She says, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah what happened. The teacher said, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And the little girl said, then you can ask him. <laughs> oh. That was a test just to see if you were following the story. All right, on your notes here, you know me. I'd like you to get an overview of the text. So for all of the ladies that are in precepts, where are my precept studying ladies? I have a chart for you today, ladies. There it is. That's my version of studying the book as a whole. But I want to give you an overview. And then we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to tell the story in terms of the application. So there are five points today. And that'll be on the back of your outline. But in, as a way of introduction, I want to tell you a little about the author. The traditional view is that Jonah, of course, is the author of this text, even though he doesn't use the first person. And his name means dove, which ironically seems kind of different because he's out there preaching uh, war and taking out Nineveh. He acted politically more like a hawk. Now, he is a, a figure in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. He's one of those prophets who actually predicted success 
uh, for Israel. He's the son of Amittai, and it happens at the end of Joash's reign, during the beginning of Jeroboam's reign. All this to say, so what? But the bottom line is what he said comes true, and so he's not just kind of an out-of-the-way prophet. He's pretty famous. And in fact, those of us who have studied history, and as you've looked at the text maybe in the past, some believe that Jonah's mother was the widow who felt, uh, fed Elijah at Zarephath. So check out 1 Kings chapter 17. Now his hometown, Gath Hepper, which like no one can pronounce, is just three miles away from Nazareth, which is interesting because that means that Joseph is a hero in Nazareth before the ultimate hero of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, would be born many, many years later. Others believe that Jonah is probably a, a disciple of Elisha, and he's been a prophet of Israel, and he's known for his ministry. But the bottom line is, this is an interesting assignment. He's not going to go preach to his people. He's being sent to Nineveh. So the historical context is this. All these places that we're talking about, Tarshish, Nineveh, Gathepper, we, we know where those places are today. And even though secular history doesn't record this event, we do know that it is, in fact, in early Christian writings on the catacomb walls, the most uh, written about, uh, illustrated story in the catacombs of Rome. I think that's very interesting. In fact, uh, you can see some of those pictures uh, from the catacombs behind me there. And nothing was etched in the Christian mind more than that. Now, the most uh, important kind of piece of, of um, understanding about whether this is a legitimate, real story is who? who? Who claims that Jonah was a real person? Pretty famous guy. Jesus, right? Write down Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40. Just like Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of a whale, a uh, huge fish, great fish, um, Jesus gives attestation to that. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32 also does. And so the bottom line is this is a story that is legit. It's not just some myth or allegory. Now, I've put the little chart there together for you because you see that Jonah is like all of us. You know, if I were to summarize chapter 1, he'd be the protesting prophet. Then he becomes the praying prophet. Next week when you look at Jonah in the belly of the whale, then he's the preaching prophet. He actually does what he says he's going to do. And then finally, Scott gets to preach on chapter 4 when he relapses. He's the pouting prophet. He's running from God. He's running to God. He's running with God. Then he's running against God. In fact, you'll see that God uses this word great. Have you ever seen the word great in this text? There's a great storm. There's a great fish. There's a great city. And there's ultimately a great Lord. And you can kind of read through the rest of, uh, of, of the analogies and the, and the observations that we have here. But the theme is what I want you to get at this morning. Most importantly, out of this first chapter, I want to suggest that ships are the things that take us away from God. And I'll, I'll bring that into further clarity in just a few moments. And it's the storms in life that bring us back to God. Amen? You see, we think that the ships are the things that are going to satisfy us. And ultimately, it's the storms of life that bring us to our knees. Yeah. Isn't it interesting, ladies, that again, on this week that I'm preaching, you're here, that this message may be for you to attest to. Amen. 
It's the storms in your life that brought you to the place you are today. And so let's look at it together. Let's look at the takeaway. How can we learn from Jonah? What are the five lessons that we can kind of walk away from today in this text? Well, first one is this. Number one, God often asks us to do things we don't want to do. You go, really, Pastor John? You've got an amazing grasp for the obvious, right? God often asks us to do things that we don't want to do. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. That's like me being sent to Las Vegas and preaching against Las Vegas, against gambling, against prostitution, against whatever. And so this Nineveh thing was, what's the big deal about Nineveh? Well, you got to know something about history. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. You say, who cares? Who's Assyria? Well, Assyria, 50 years later, is going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, and they are going to take people captive. It's a huge city, 100-foot wide walls, enough to drive four chariot horses along the side. The palace of the king had 71 halls and was two miles in length. It's a huge first-class city. But the bottom line is Nineveh and the Assyrians are horrible people. And in fact, they were one of the most cruel and barbaric nations of the day. When they conquered a city, they'd uh, cut everybody's heads off and make a pyramid of the skulls. And I won't read you all the other quotes about how cruel and barbaric they were. So it's surprising that the the, the prophet who everybody has favor with, with Jonah, is being sent outside the safety of Israel to go on a mission to condemn uh, the Ninevites and say, you've got to repent. You've got to come back to the Lord. The Assyrian nation needed deliverance. They needed grace. They needed mercy. They needed compassion. And unfortunately, Jonah wasn't that man. To show that compassion. In fact, the bottom line, we ask ourselves, well, why did he just not do it? He's got God on his side. Last time what God said came true. People loved him. Why wouldn't he go? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. I think there's three reasons. Number one, fear for his own life. This assignment is going to be brutal. The Syrians, as we said, were horrible people to the, to the people they took into bondage and slavery. Number two, this is strong words. He hated, he hated the Assyrians. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, where, you know, Pastor uh, Scott will deal with, look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. He said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to foresaw this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant loving kindness. He said, he's pouting, goes, you did what you said you did. They repented. You relented. I hate that. I want you to destroy them. I don't want them to repent. The last thing he wants is their salvation. The last thing he wants is for this sadistic, cruel, torturing nation to repent. He's thinking in his mind, these are the people that could destroy us, and God wants us to extend grace, compassion, Kindness. Now, lest we judge Jonah too quickly, let me meddle with us just for a few moments again, like I used to. Just think about this. Are we ever like Jonah? Aren't there people in our lives that 
Honestly, if the truth be known, you detest them. You dislike them. They discourage you. You want to destroy them, and you can go with all the other words, decimate them. You, you don't want to be around them. For some of you, you're, 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 you're loath to admit it. But there are strained relationships in your workplace. The guy that makes you feel about this tall and always has that quick retort and that sharp tongue that makes you feel like you're this bitty in his eyes. You don't want him to come to Christ because you don't like him. He's a jerk. You don't pray like bad things would happen to him. Well, yes, you do, actually. <laughs> See, we all have a little bit of Joan in us, that person that just rubs you the wrong way. And thirdly, the reason why Jonah wanted out of his assignment, he's just stubborn. He is just stubborn. He wants to do it his way. Frank Sinatra's way. Our way is the better way. And so he's choosing to follow God on his own terms. And so I ask you, ever you try to run from God? We're going to see that he chooses to run here in just a moment. You see, I don't think this story is primarily about being gulped up by a big fish. Instead, we're going to see it's a story essentially about God's heart and ultimately our heart. Jonah's story is that story of the gospel. A story of sin, of grace, of desperation, deliverance. You see, Jonah is you. Jonah is me. I was lost. Now I'm found. And so my question to you is, where is your Nineveh? Where is that place you don't want to go? There are all kinds of awkward political things happening in our world today. And there are people that we engage with that are on the opposite sides of the aisle from you politically or morally. And maybe God's calling you to reach those people that no one else will reach. The blind Scottish pastor George Matheson said this, Make me a captive, Lord, and then... I shall be free. Jonah is a captive. Number two, second takeaway this morning is you can always find a boat or a ship sailing in the wrong direction. You can always find a boat or a ship sailing in the wrong direction. You see, those ships are those things that take you away from God. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence. Where is he going from? Not just away from the assignment, but he's going away from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's look at the map because we don't quite understand the directions here. You see Nineveh, you see Joppa, you see Tarshish. He's going as far as he possibly can away from the assignment. Let me give you a little uh, uh, geography lesson here. It would have uh, taken him about a month to walk to Nineveh from where he was. But going to Joppa and then to Tarshish would have been a sea journey of at least a year and 2,000 miles away. So let's put it into context. God says, you're going to Compton to reach people for Christ. 
and you say, no, I'm not. I'm going to go to Honolulu to reach people for Christ. That's what I'm doing. All right? All right. So this city in southern Spain is where he's headed, and Jonah thinks it's at the end of the world, far from God. It's just so funny how we think we can run from God, isn't it? Can we, ladies, on three, can we run from God? No. Yeah. You know, we, we think we can. Psalm 139 says, I don't think so. Reread Psalm 139. You can't get away from God. And the crazy thing is some of you who are sitting here today go, what did I do? Couldn't I just come to a nice little church service with some pastor giving some little sermon? I'm just going to sneak out and get to brunch. And now he's talking about me running from God. Maybe you are that Jonah today. And so any ship can take you away from God. So what are those escape patterns in your life? What are those ships that we kind of cling to? Maybe it's been a bad relationship. Maybe it's a boyfriend. It's a girlfriend. It's a codependent, abusive, manipulative relationship. Now, some of our ships, the way we escape from God, are actually kind of good things on, on the surface level, fame and fortune and friends and the future and maybe food or whatever, right? But maybe that ship has become your idol. It's that thing that's taking you away from God because it takes its rightful place in your life as opposed to where God should be in your life. I like what Mark Driscoll says. He said, good things that become God things that become bad things. See, sometimes it's not the horrendous, awful things that take us away from God. It's those, those easy, easy things that substitute for God. And so it's those things that, that take us away from God, that lure us away from Him, escaping responsibility. In essence, these ships cause us to say, no, God, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Now, I want to tell you something. When you say no to God, you're going to see in the text here that you're going to put yourself in danger, and generally, you're going to put other people in danger. Things, bad things happen when we run from God. And so, expect a storm, because that storm is going to bring you to your knees and say, I need you. You know, I grew up in a, in a Christian home, went to a Christian school from kindergarten to eighth grade. I accepted Christ on January 8th, 1963, as a six-year-old in a first-grade class with a teacher who was 6'4", 240 pounds. No, that just seemed that she was that big. I'm sure he was 5'1", you know. But she was an older lady who was firm. She was a taskmaster. And I've told you this story before, but the bottom line is when she said that we were all going to hell, 24 first grade hands raised their hands and said, we're going for Jesus, we're opting in for Jesus because hell doesn't sound very good and you might be there. No, we didn't say that. But I remember going on my kind of idyllic little life, those years, wonderful home, even had a great sister who's actually in the audience today, eight years older. There's my sister right there. She has brown hair even, even that. And yet, when I got out of that little cocoon going into high school, I realized that I kind of did life on my own, on my own efforts. 
on what I could do. I was a good student. Everything was good. And when we get to the end of the sermon, realize today that some of you are Jonah's who are trying to do things in your own efforts as well. Just remember that in just a second. And so Jonah's rebellion is blatant. Maybe ours is a little more subtle. But the incarnation of Christ tells us that God spares nothing in his lavish pursuit of you. And when you're far from him, he never gives up on you. And so thirdly, the third takeaway this morning is God may send us a storm to get our attention. Look at verses 4 through 12. I'm going to try to summarize this for you uh, today. There's a lot here. God may send us a storm to get our attention. So look what God does in verse 4, God's answer. God hurled a great wind. That literally means to throw a javelin, um, and the sea rose up. Now, it's interesting. God has no problem controlling the environment, does he? Because the same God had a big sea going on in the New Testament, right? And Peter kind of walked on the water for a while. He can bring it up. He can set it down. And the God of all creation is very capable of brewing up a massive storm in the blink of an eye. And if you circled the word great in your text, that word is used several times, and it's tied to an event in nature every time or another thing that God's going to step in and intervene. So what does God use to get our attention today? For some of you, you'll tell me God got my attention when I got divorced. And it was through that divorce that I found God. Others will tell me, I found God when I lost a baby through an abortion. Or others, I found God when the storm of losing a job and being fired unjustly got my attention. And whatever road you were on, when God gets your attention, it's a He gets it in a big way. He's not very subtle about it. You see, as one person said, in order to receive the direction from God, you must be able to receive correction from God. Well, how do the sailors respond to the big storm? Look at their angst in verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his own God. Notice that's little g, not God Yahweh, little g God. That'll be different a little later on in the text. And they threw the carter off the ship. These are hardened sailors. If they're getting a little weak-kneed, this is a big deal. How many of you watched The Deadliest Catch? All right? I watched that. It makes me weak-kneed. I could never do that. I could never do that. And so these sailors are, are kind of having short, uh, short-lived religion. They're throwing ca- cargo off. They're calling out to God, little g. What does Jonah do? Look at his avoidance at the end of verse 5. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep. Now, let me get this straight. You're the cause of all this. You kind of just go hide in the, in the belly of the ship, and you're taking a little nap while everybody is heaving, so to speak, and, and just upset. You see, Jonah's exhausted, isn't he? Let me just give you a little insight medically what happens when you run from God. It's going to affect you physically. And so often, it's not just the physical exhaustion that these ladies can speak to. It's the emotional exhaustion of everywhere you turn, the door is shut. 
and you can't escape and you're stuck and you're wondering if God would ever rescue you from whatever it is. For some of these ladies, it's an addiction. For some of you, it's that stubborn, self-willed statement that says, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I've made my own way. I've made this money. I've got the house. I've got the cars. I've got the kids. I've got everything I want except for peace. Except for the fact that every single one of us was created with a God-shaped vacuum in our soul. And nothing you ever try to do to stuff that and fill that, if it's filled with anything but Jesus Christ, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So Jonah tries to avoid things. Look at verse 6. So the captain takes a different approach. So the captain approaches him and says, how is it you're sleeping? How are you sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Notice it's little g again, not the text fault. That's his approach. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us and so that we will not perish. He's going down because he thinks the ship's going down. He wants to see where everybody is. He finds Jonah sound asleep. He wants to know what's going on and why. So different from another guy in a storm in, in Acts 27. What did Paul do? He's, he's a prisoner. He's consoling people. He's rallying the troops. So what is the sailor's solution? Verses 7 and 8. Each man said to his mate, let us cast lots. So you know the story. They cast lots. We've got to find out who's the guy who's causing the problem. They're all looking to blame somebody else. And by the way, when we live in sin, we're always going to blame somebody else. We're not going to take a look at our own lives to see if we're the cause, right? And so Jonah finally confesses in verses 9 through 11. He says, and by the way, look what they ask him. They ask him four questions. He avoids all of them but one. They tell us, on what account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What, what people are you from? And finally, all he says is, I'm a Hebrew of the hero, Hebrews. I fear the Lord God. Is he stretching it just a bit? I think so. He says he fears God, but he kind of was running from God, and he now is fearing God. And then he became extremely frightened, they said to them, or the men became extremely frightened. See that word great, that same word extreme, same word as great in the text. How could you do this? For the men now know that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Notice it's now Yahweh, capital L, big God. They recognize this is the real God, the, the real deal. And so they said to him, what should we do to you that you, the sea may become calm for us? Because the sea, what was really at DEFCON 4, it goes ballistic now. And they're thinking, we're going to die. The ship's going to break up. We're all going to die. What are we going to do? What would you have done if you're Jonah? Well, Jonah has a solution. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will be calm for you. For I know that on account of me that this, see the word great again? Great storm has come upon us. Do you know what he's actually asking them to do? He might as well have said, kill me. Throw him overboard and let me drown. Now, we have this kind of romanticized view. Oh, Jonah, taking one for the team. No. He's not taking one for the team. He's a coward. He is no hero right now. And in fact... 
he doesn't still want to take responsibility for his choices, and in fact, he'd rather die than carry out the assignment to preach to Nineveh. He still wants to do things his own way. And he finally admits out loud that he's the source of the problem. He's starting to take responsibility ever so slightly for his choices. Isn't it amazing when we are far from God, how many ways we rationalize that it's okay or that it's somebody else's fault or if I would have had better parents or if I would have been in a better marriage or this or that. Let me give you a little insight. Sometimes pastors make big rationalizations too. If my elders would have only understood me, if the church would have only been more focused on outreach, if this, if that. You know what I've learned over 35 years of ministry? God has you exactly where he wants you to be to teach you a lesson that you could never learn in any other place. And to the degree that I listen to him, then I learn not to make the same stupid mistakes over and over again. I've told you before, my backside of the desert was a little church in Moore Park where for four and a half years I was preaching my heart out and the church did not grow. In fact, if you preach, they will leave. It was not the field of dreams. They did not come. They did not come. It was lonely. But I am telling you, in those four and a half years, I don't know if I was ever more dependent on God than then. And then God says, you talk about running from God. You know, I, I wanted to run from Moore Park. He said, no, you got to stay. you got to stay. you got to stay. You can't go. I want to go. you got to stay. I was kidding you several months ago that I threw myself off my own boat, but then I looked at the story. This is not a good analogy, so I don't want to use that anymore. I don't want to do that, but ultimately God brought me to this place at a special time in our history as a church. Now, I'm not comparing you, by the way, to the Ninevites, just to clarify all of that right now, up front. But my obedience was to come here even though it had never been a part of my plan. But once he made it clear that this is where I was to be, then I embraced that. And so Jonah says, throw me off. It's an act of, of cowardice. And I want to give you a principle. To the degree that we rebel against God, it's like a downward, whirlpooling, spiraling thing that it just doesn't get better. Notice he goes down to Joppa, he goes down into the cargo area of the ship, he goes down into the sea, and next week we're going to see that he's down in the belly of a whale. Takeaway number four. The storm is an intervention, not a punishment. Look at verses 13 through 17. You see, interventions are for those who are in trouble but don't realize it. And they have these self-destructive Habits and they're living in denial and Jonah doesn't recognize how horribly in denial he's been. And it's the storm that is the very thing that brings him to his senses. 
It was the prodigal son's storm of his destitute life that brought him to his senses, his near starvation. And so it's God's way of loosing Jonah's chains of self-reliance and you can do it and I'm the man. You see, he thought that running from God would make him free. But we sang this, it doesn't make you free. The only freedom is found in bondage to Christ. Isn't that ironic? You want to be free? Shackle yourselves to Jesus Christ. Amen? I love it. Could you come back next week too? The next three weeks, four weeks, just come back every week. This would be good. And so the sailors' predicament, they're saying, we don't want to do it. Look at verse 3. So the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier. It's, it's gone from bad to worse to this is unbelievable. No one's ever seen anything like this. Now, they put, they tried to row harder. I think that is so funny. If rowing harder would have worked, they might have done that a little sooner, right? This is kind of a little humor in the text, like, oh, we'll just row harder. Don't we do that with God, too? I'm going to please God by being more spiritual. I'm just going to row harder. I'm going to attend church more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to do all these man-made things. But ultimately, God says, I just need you. All this other stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I think coming to church is good. I think studying your Bible is great. But rowing harder isn't going to save you. And so getting back to shore is not going to be happening. And so the interesting thing is, though, he shows no compassion to Nineveh. These pagan sailors are showing more compassion to Jonah. What's their prayer? Then they called on the Lord. Now, what is it? Big G? The Lord, capital L, Yahweh. This is not little G God anymore. They're calling on the Lord. We earnestly, three times, they call, call out to Yahweh. We pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Now, I think it's kind of funny. They're saying, this guy over here, he's a loser. We're not with him. We're separate. We don't know him. Talk to the hand. They don't want anything to do with him and say, God, take him, but don't take our lives, our innocent blood, although we're not any of us innocent, are we? And I'll do as you've pleased. So they call on God. And by the way, this is the, f- the first real prayer in the whole text right now. These guys' prayer. And so what's their plan? Verses 15 to 17. They picked up Jonah. They threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. Now, this has got to freak people out. I mean, you're in a gale force, hurricane, stormy, deadliest catch kind of a situation. The boat's about to break up. And as soon as Jonah goes overboard, it's like, That's weird. I mean, it's like, wax on, wax off. I'm sorry, I have no idea what Karate Kid has to do with this. But it looked better in my notes at the time. Little little thin. Little thin there. At least it's my fault today. All right, all right. Four things that happen when they put their plan into place. Right? This is the summary of chapter one. Plop. They throw him over blood. Peace. The sea, the sea stops. Praising God. Look at verse uh, 16. Then the, mirrored, the men feared the Lord and greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And then there's provision. Plop, peace, praise, provision. Look at verse 17. Look at this. And the Lord anointed, I mean appointed, 
a anointed, appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And so the interesting thing is, next week we'll look at God's ultimate provision. That storm was to get him his senses. To, it was an intervention. But the fish is a rescue vehicle, not a punishment vehicle. And so I want to close with this. That summarizes all of chapter 1. And it's very interesting. I was talking to Chad about this. It got a little chatter on Twitter uh, this week. On his, if you ever follow Chad, there's a bazillion people reading his stuff. So if he quotes you, you may get in for some disagreements of people who don't really agree with what I said. And it's not me. It's actually this quote comes from Billy uh, Graham's grandson on his maternal side. I can't pronounce his name. He's a pastor in Florida. It begins with T and it sounds like Tchaikovsky. But anyway, that's the guy. The gospel doesn't make bad people good. It makes dead people alive. That's the point of chapter 1. The gospel doesn't make bad people good. It makes dead people alive. See, we can't do anything to merit favor with God. This is why the gospel is so prevalent in Jonah. We think it's just an Old Testament story. It's the gospel right here in four chapters. It's a great story. And so I've put a little chart together because I think that what happens is that two kinds of people run from God. You see, we have the sailors. We, those are the rebellious ones. And then we have religious people like Jonah who run from God. We have the law breakers and we have the law keepers. In the prodigal son story, that's the younger brother versus the older brother. Either through moralistic religion or the gospel. Through our own goodness or through God's greatness. And so, you see, all kinds of people run from God. And we think that our sin is so bad. But remember this today. God's grace is so much more expansive. And so I, wanna, I want you to write this down. I didn't put in your notes. I want you to write this definition of grace down. And let's just parse this as we wrap up today. Grace can be defined as unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person. That's all of us. By an unobligated giver, and that's God. That's what grace is, unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. And that's the kind of grace that we're going to study these next four weeks. And so when it's all summarized, you've heard me say this before, God plus nothing equals everything. But everything minus God equals nothing. You see, the secret of our quest as we study this book is not going to be in our brilliance. It's going to be about His grace. Friends, He came to deliver you. He came to save you. And for some of us, we realized long ago, thank goodness, that He reached down and as the Psalms say, He pulled us up 
out of the miry clay. Thank goodness for some of us, a caring youth worker put his arm or her arm around our shoulder and said, I believe in you, but that's not as important as that he believes in you and God's got a plan for your life. Thank goodness some of you married someone who said, I can't really go out with you until you start coming to church. And that was their way of you finding Jesus because you wanted to date the girl. So you went for God and you got both. For some of you, it's a reminder today that no matter where you are in the journey of life, there will be times where you are tempted to say, God, time out. I got this. You know what? You don't got this. There are no timeouts. What there is is a passionate, never-ending, God graciously dragging you, some of you kicking and squaring you to him. And when you think you're good enough and that somehow you merit the favor that God is lucky to have you, that's when it becomes the Jonah in all of us because then we run from the kingdom assignment because we're afraid of what he really wants from us. Amen? It's going to be a great study over these next few weeks. Don't miss a week. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, maybe there's a few Jonas out here today and we're running from you. And if you're Jonah today, it's hard to admit it because maybe you're on the prodigal son's side or maybe you're on the older brother's side. So whichever way you've run from God today, it's time to come home. I'd like to pray for you. If you see Jonah in your life in any way today, would you look up at me and say, that's me. Yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm raising my hand too. Anybody else? Okay, 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 okay. All over this auditorium. Okay. Well, Lord, we want to quit running today. We want to quit running. And I thank you that your grace is sufficient. That ultimately, I want to thank you for the storms you bring into my life because they bring you, bring me back to you. And Lord, don't let me get on a ship that takes me away from you. I want to follow you with all my heart. I want the very essence of who I am, every breath I take. I want to breathe you in. I want you to be the source of my existence. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so now, may the grace of God surround and permeate your lives. May he be the wise one in your life who gives you direction. May he be your strong shield. May he be the ultimate defense of your life. And Lord, today we lift you up, our gracious Heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. Elders will be up here to pray with you.
Say hello to the girls, and God bless you.